Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to be today. Matthew chapter 1. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do. Um, we intentionally don't put the verses on the screen um, for the text that we're looking at because uh, I want for you to be able to look at it yourself. Um, and so hopefully if you don't have a Bible, you can use it on your phone or there's um, some in the seats around um, the room. But Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to be. We're going to start in verse 18 and we're going to go through verse 25. And then next week we'll be in Matthew chapter 2. So Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. We're going to start by reading it and then um, we'll talk about it. Sound good? Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Well, what I want to talk about this morning is a a simple question, and that is this. How can the message of Christmas, how can the story of Christmas, this familiar story, how can you get it into your life in such a way that it can change you? How can you get the the story of Christmas into your life in a way that would actually make a difference in your life? So that Christmas is not just this sentimental feeling that you have once a year. And Christmas is not just this cute thing that's for kids. But that Christmas can actually be a life-changing thing for you. How do you get Christmas in your life in a way that can make a difference? That's what I want to talk about. And so for Christmas to change you, I want to talk about two things this morning. For Christmas to change you, I want to talk about two truths that you must trust and two costs that you must count. For Christmas to change you, two truths that you must trust and two costs that you must count. So first, two truths that you must trust. The first is that God is Emmanuel. God is Emmanuel. That's the first truth that you must trust. Aren't we impressed with people who are in high places who associate with normal people? Aren't we impressed when we, when we find out that somebody with a lot of authority or a lot of money or a lot of, a lot of power or a lot of influence, when they're so down to earth? When I was in college, I remember um, our president, the president of our college on move-in day, would always show up in jeans and a t-shirt to help students move in. And I remember students and families used to always be so impressed that the president of the school would serve in that way. 
because he's this man with power and yet he's down to earth. He's choosing to serve. And this is also true of celebrities, isn't it? If you've ever heard of a celebrity or, or you've ever had the chance to meet a star of some kind, one of the things that you talked about with your friends afterwards was, well, they just seemed like such a real person. Like that was impressive to you. Something about that was impressive to you. Um, recently, Courtney and I uh, went to hear uh, the comedian Nate Bargatze in um, St. Louis. He was at, uh, don't remember the name of the place in the loop, but he was there. And uh, because his dad works with my stepdad um, in Tennessee, uh, we got to be on the, the VIP list, which we'd never been on a VIP list before. So I didn't even know that they had a VIP list. And so that just meant that after the show or whatever, a concert, uh, I don't know what you call them, I guess show is fine, um, we got to go backstage and have a little meet and greet with Nate Bargatze. And what we talked about afterwards is He's just such a normal guy, you know? I mean, he just, here's, here's this kid from Tennessee who turns out to be really funny, and now we, that's his career, right? But we were so impressed with just how down-to-earth he was, and you've experienced that before, too. And that's the connotation of the word Emmanuel. The idea behind the word Emmanuel, which means God with us, the idea behind that is that the person with all power, with all wealth, with all privilege, with all influence. The person in the highest tower associates with us. He's down to earth. God with us. Just think about that with each of those three words. God, the one who made all things, the one who makes all things continue to exist, the one who is responsible for your heart beating right now. You're not having to work to make that happen. The God who's responsible for sunsets and beaches and mountains and anything else that you thought was pretty, your wife, your kid. The God who has made all of that is with us. He's with us. That means he's a personal God. He's not off in the ivory tower, but he's on the streets. He's close. He's near. He's accessible. He's approachable. He's at hand. And he's with us. Us. White people, black people, Jews, Gentiles, tall people, short people, wealthy people, poor people, He's with us. Folks who came from Maplewood and folks who came from mid-cities, folks who were from St. Louis and folks who just moved here, he's with us. Extroverts and introverts, creatives and people who are organized, procrastinators and people who keep their schedule, he's with all of us. He's with us. That's what Emmanuel means. Now, that's the truth, the first truth that we must trust, that God is with us. And do you see what this means? This means that you have a God who gets you, who understands you. You have a God who knows your way. 
You know what that means? A God who knows your way. In Psalm 142, verse 3, this is one of my favorite little verses. David says, When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. Now, David prayed that little prayer when he was in a cave running for his life. He had experienced this um, huge fame out of nowhere because he had killed this giant. He was next in line to be king, and so he all of a sudden has people who want to be his friend that he doesn't know. He has all of these highs happen, and then all of a sudden the king who's currently in power wants to kill him, and so he has to flee. He's running for his life with this just small little band of misfits, basically, outcasts. He ends up in a cave, literally hiding while an army is pursuing him. And he writes this little prayer, though my spirit is weak or faint within me, God, you know my way. In other words, God knows what it's like to experience pain too. God knows what it's like to walk where you walk. God knows what it's like to experience what you are experiencing. He's not a distant God who's aloof and out of touch with the world, but instead he's a God who's close and near. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. And we're a lot like David. We know what it's like to have highs and lows, and the beauty of Christianity is that God knows too. This is why David could also pray later in Psalm 23, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You're with me. This reminds me of one of my favorite little sections from The Magician's Nephew, which is um, a book in the Chronicles of Narnia series. And um, we're going to read this quote in a second. So don't read it yet because you need to know the context, okay? Um, So in the book, in the story, there's this main character named Diggory. And Diggory is very upset because his mom is very sick and she's about to die. But he finds himself away from his mom in England and in this land of Narnia. And he meets this lion named Aslan. And Aslan is very impressive. He's huge and strong and big and mighty. And he's this just impressive lion. And everybody respects him. And Aslan has a a particular task that he wants Diggory to go and pursue. So there's this moment in the book where Diggory is about to decide if he's going to accept this task. And here's what happens. He looks up. But please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny, that means yellowish orange, for the tawny face was bent down near his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. 
They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. See, up until this moment, he had been impressed by the lion. But now he looks into the lion's face and what he sees surprises him. It's that the lion is not just big and strong and mighty, but the lion is also close and near and compassionate. And the tears in the lion's eyes were bigger even than his own. And that's the kind of God that we have as Christians. A God who knows our way a God who understands what it's like to walk where we walk, a God whose tears over our circumstances are bigger even than our own. Now, for thousands of years, the Jewish people believed that figuratively. For thousands of years, the Jewish people believed that God was with us in a spiritual way. But Matthew wants to show us that it's true in an even greater way than anyone could have imagined. And here's the second truth that we have to trust. God is Emmanuel and God is Jesus. Jesus. What's interesting about this little section of scripture is we get two names for God. And a lot of times uh, churches will do like studies on the names of God, you know. And they'll have all of these Hebrew words that you learn, like El Shaddai and um, Adonai and all these words like that. Emmanuel is one of those words. But what I think is so great here is that the name for God that we get that often we wouldn't put in a class like that is the name Jesus. God is Jesus. So many times we try to defend the fact that Jesus is God, like Jesus the man is God. But the emphasis here is that God is Jesus. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. And the word Jesus, the name Jesus, simply means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Yahweh is God's covenantal name in the Old Testament. I am. The word I am. That I am who I am. That's Yahweh. And so the word Jesus, or the Hebrew word for that is Joshua, just means Yahweh saves. And the angel tells Joseph to name Jesus, Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. In the Old Testament, God promised that he would save Israel from their sins. Psalm 130 verse 8 says this, And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And now Jesus is coming to do it. So what God said he would do for his people is applied to Jesus. Do you see that? So, uh, where, what verse is this? should have circled it. Normally I do, but... Um, here we go, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. 
So God is coming to keep his promise that he will save his people from their sins. And who does he send to accomplish that? Jesus. This is one of the subtle ways that God is claiming to be Jesus, that Jesus is claiming divinity or that the gospel writers are claiming divinity for Jesus here. And this is why God can be called. This is why Jesus can be called Emmanuel, God with us, because he has come to save us from our sins. Luke 19, verse 10. says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's why Jesus has come. 1 Timothy 1.15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So this is why Jesus has come. It's in his name. He has come to save people from their sins. Why do we need to be saved from our sins? Why do we need to be saved from our sins? I want to give you three basic reasons. First, because our sins create dysfunction in our lives and in the lives of the people around us, don't they? Our lives create dysfunction. You've experienced telling a lie before that made things worse for people. You've treated people poorly before, haven't you? You've hurt people, disappointed people, even the people that you love, you hurt sometimes. You say things that you wish you wouldn't have said. You do things to them that you wish you hadn't done. So we need to be saved from ourselves and our own dysfunction that we create. We also need to be saved from the powers of darkness. Now, this is kind of a strange um, thing that Christians believe, but we believe there's an invisible spiritual world around us and that part of that spiritual world is evil. There's a person called the devil who's a spiritual being who has lots of different people who work for him. Not people like humans, but beings who do his bidding, who wreak havoc in the world. And as long as we are in the world and in our sin, we are subject to the devil's schemes. And so we need to be saved from that. So we need to be saved from ourselves. We need to be saved from the powers of darkness. And we also need to be saved from God and God's wrath. God's wrath is his right response to sin. God's right response to sin is his wrath. It's, what is the right response? It's anger and it's action. It's anger and it's action. God is not a God who looks at injustice and covers it up or sweeps it under the rug or says it's not that important or it's not that big of a deal. Instead, God is a God. He's an authority who acts. He gets angry when things are broken. He gets angry when people are hurt. He gets angry when there's evil. And he acts. And he's promised that someday there is judgment that will come where he will bring his wrath. So we need to be saved from that too. So we need to be saved from ourselves. We need to be saved from the powers of darkness and we need to be saved from God's wrath. So how does someone get saved from that stuff? How does someone protect themselves from sin and all of the negative consequences that are a result of sin? 
And the answer is, you don't run from God and his wrath, but instead you come to him. The reason that you can come to him is because he has come to us in his son, Jesus. Rather than leave us in this state, rather than abandon us to our evil, even though we had turned all of us our own way and we have ignored God, God comes to us to save us in his son, Jesus. And Jesus' name itself means Yahweh saves. Jesus comes He lives a perfect, sinless life. Every standard that you need to meet, Jesus met. And then he goes to the cross and he dies in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. And then he's raised from the dead to offer us life after death. Death is the ultimate consequence of sin, and Jesus defeats that so that we can have life with him. And the right response to that news about what Jesus has come to do is trust, faith, belief. So the invitation this morning for you, if you do not know Jesus, if you are still in your sins, if you know that you're carrying around guilt and shame because of something that you've done or, thing, or a pattern of things that you've done, or maybe you have this shame because of something that someone has done to you even, the response is to come and trust in Jesus that he can give you a new name, that he can redeem your story, that he can save you from your sins the dysfunction that you create for yourselves, the terror of being in this world of spiritual darkness and also the terror of God's judgment that is coming. Jesus saves. So come and believe. So if you're going to get Christmas into your life in a way that can change you, there's two truths that you must trust. First, God is Emmanuel. He is with us. And second, God is Jesus. He can save you from your sins. Now, what will embracing those two truths, what will believing in Jesus cost you? What will it cost you? Jesus says in Luke chapter 14 that before you follow him, you should count the cost. You should know, what is, what is this going to require of me? What is this going to cost me? In the same way that a king doesn't go to battle unless he counts the cost and knows he can win. In the same way that somebody doesn't build a tower until they figure out, do I have enough money and do I have the plans to do this? In the same way, following Jesus, we should count the cost. And there are two costs, I think, that we must count just based on this little section. And I want to think about this through the lens of Joseph. Think about Joseph's situation here. He's a man who is betrothed or engaged. And in the ancient world, that was a little bit more significant than it is today, but basically the same thing. So he's supposed to get married to this woman. 
And then it turns out that she's pregnant. But don't worry, she says, it's just from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> okay? Now, you would believe that just as much as he would, right? It's like, okay. That was just as hard to believe then as it is today. So now Joseph is faced with a choice, okay? He's got this woman who is pregnant. He knows that he hasn't slept with her. She claims it's from the Holy Spirit, okay? Which he doesn't even really have a category for. So now he's got a couple options. He can do what an average Jew would do, and that is legally he can be divorced from her and he can even have her arrested and in some cases executed for being unfaithful to this covenant that she has made. So that's option one. He can divorce her quietly or break off this marriage quietly so that he saves her from humiliation, right? Or he could go through with it and look weak, gullible. So his plan is option two. He's going to divorce her quietly. And it says because he is a just man. He's a righteous man. He's a good guy. He doesn't want to publicly embarrass her and humiliate her. He's just, he's going to try to handle this in the most, you know, reasonable, courteous way possible. But then, an angel of the Lord comes to him, verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so now he is being encouraged to take option three. That's to stick with Mary. And now his reputation is on the line publicly. Think about this. By sticking with Mary, he's admitting to something. He's either admitting that he, in fact, is the dad and he was unfaithful, and so he's actually not that just of a man. He's actually not that good of a guy. He's actually not that righteous. He's either admitting that or he's admitting that he's gullible and he just believed this story about the Holy Spirit or he's believing that or he's, he's admitting that Mary was unfaithful to him. And rather than go through with the divorce, he's too weak to stand up to it. And so by sticking with Mary, Joseph's reputation is on the line. Now, granted, Mary is in a horrible situation too. Because here she is. She didn't ask for any of this. She's pregnant and there's no explanation except for God made me pregnant. <laughs> and so the whole situation between Joseph and Mary, in order for them to get Jesus in their life, it cost them their reputation. And the reason that's so interesting to me is because the same was true as Jesus was walking around and doing ministry 
that to be a follower of Jesus eventually costs you your reputation. And the same is true today. If you're going to follow Jesus, then eventually you will lose face with the world. And if you are not ever put into a situation where being a follower of Jesus causes you to lose face with the world, it's probably not Jesus that you're following. Following Jesus will cost you your reputation. Think about this. Intellectually, being a follower of Jesus will cost you your reputation. Christians believe in the virgin birth. And that's right at the beginning. It's not like buried in like one little section. It's like, no, if you're going to read the gospel, if you're going to read the story of Jesus, from the very outset, you're confronted with the virgin birth. It's like the virgin birth is a door to studying Jesus. And above the door, it says, what follows is not normal. It's supernatural. There is no, I'm going to take Jesus as this moral teacher who was an inspirational man, who lived a great life and is a good example for us to follow. There's none of that with Jesus. From the very outset of Jesus, you're confronted with this virgin birth. Christianity is a supernatural faith, and that will cause you to lose influence and at times cost you your reputation intellectually with people. Christians also believe that Jesus came to save us from our sins. Now, that is not a normal way of thinking in today's world. People admit nobody's perfect, but nobody says that we need to have a ransom that pays for our sin. That's not the way that we think. But that's the way Christians think. You're telling me there's this God who's angry at sin, and even though you've never killed anybody, and you've never raped anybody, and you've never done anything that terrible, you are still going to go to hell if you don't believe in him? But God sent his son Jesus to save you? That's what you believe? Following Jesus will cost you your reputation intellectually at times. It'll also cost you your reputation relationally. There'll be people in your life who look down on you, who make fun of you, who misunderstand you. In some cases, you'll even lose friends and family over following Jesus. In a kind of funny way, I experienced this uh, when I was 17. Um, I um, was planning to go to Bible college to prepare to be a pastor. And my grandfather didn't like preachers. Um, he had some bad, you know, interactions with some preachers in his day. And so my grandfather took me out to lunch and um, made this deal with me that if I would not go to Bible college and not become a pastor, he would buy me a brand new truck. <laughs> okay. Now, as a 17-year-old, it's like, you know, follow Jesus with my whole life and, you know, forsake all things or have a new truck. It's like, the truck sounds pretty good, right? And so it was like a moment of like, are you sure, granddaddy? Am, are, am I hearing what you're actually, is this the, we're having the same conversation? Yeah. 
And in that moment, me having to say, Granddaddy, I don't want the new truck. I really am going to go to Chicago and go to Bible, Bible college. He didn't disown me, you know. It's not like I'd, I was a Muslim who converted to Christianity and I like, couldn't show my face in my house again. That's real costing of your reputation and your relationships. And that really goes on in the world. That's not what I was having to do. He was still my granddad. He was still proud of me or whatever. But the rest of our, our interactions were a little bit awkward. And that's going to be true for you in some way. Following Jesus at some point is going to cost you your reputation. Pastor Tim Keller says, to follow Jesus, you have to have the courage to take the world's disdain. You have to have the courage to take the world's disdain. At some point, following Jesus will put you at odds with the world, and if it doesn't, it's not Jesus that you're following. The second cost that we must count is this, that following Jesus will cost you control over your plans. Following Jesus will cost you control over your plans. Joseph, think about him. When he scripted out his life, he wasn't like, first I'll get married to somebody who gets pregnant as a virgin from the Holy Spirit. That wasn't like on the, you know, five-year list, you know, five-year plan. Also, Joseph is going to be the father of this kid, and he doesn't even get to name him. Now, Courtney's pregnant right now, and so one of the things that we talk about a lot is names. What would we want to name? Joseph gives up that right. The angel comes and says, here's the kid's name. <laughs> and especially in a patriarchal culture, He's giving that up. And then in chapter 2, he's about to be running from, for his life to Egypt. He doesn't want to do that. <laughs> Who wants to do that? But having Jesus in his life is costing him his plans. It's costing him his right to control his life. This child from the very beginning is requiring him to embrace a completely new set of plans. And following Jesus will rearrange the plans in your life too. It'll rearrange what you do, just what you do in life. It'll rearrange. Your morals and standards will be rearranged if you're following Jesus. The way that you view sexuality will be different if you're following Jesus. The way that you view forgiveness will be different if you're following Jesus. The world says, sleep with who you want, whoever you love, whatever desire you have, it's got to be a right desire because you have it. And the world says, people who wrong you, give them the middle finger and move on because life's too short. Following Jesus says that my body is not my own because I've been bought with a price. And so, therefore, I need to honor God with my body. I need to honor God with my sexuality. He calls the shots. Following Jesus says, even though this person has wronged me, 
I am also a wronger. I'm not just a victim. I am also someone who's responsible for pain in the world. And God has forgiven me, and therefore I must forgive. Following Jesus will change what you do morally. Following Jesus will also change what you do in terms of your priorities, your family rhythms. What matters most in your family? Some of you families with young kids, what's the goal? What's the goal in raising up these little guys? See, the world has all kinds of goals for you. Following Jesus, your goals will look different. Following Jesus, your goals will look different. And the goal will not just be helping them get into some kind of program or school or college so they can build a fortune for themselves. The goal will not just be to help them behave better. God's not after just good people. That's not what he wants. How, how does following Jesus uniquely shape the way that you parent? That's a good thing to think about. Following Jesus will change what you do with your money. It'll change what you do with your money. Followers of Jesus are called to be generous. So a good practice that I try to live by, and we've organized our church budget the same way, is whatever money we're going to take in, we're going to organize into three categories. Giving, saving, and living on the rest. Giving, saving, and living on the rest. Now, the giving section, okay? My encouragement to you is to pick a percentage, not a number. Don't be like, yeah, 100 bucks. But pick a percentage of your income that you're going to give and give that. And do the same with saving. Pick a percentage. Now, I was taught to do this as a kid, and I realize that um, there's a whole lot of, you know, different situations, and everybody's different financially. So the goal this morning is not for me to tell you how to use your money, okay? But just when I was a kid, I was taught that simple little formula. And I think it works. But more than that, I think that it is honoring to the Lord. So give, save, live on the rest. If you're currently in a financial situation where you're not able to be as generous as you would like to be, there's no guilt. Don't feel guilt, okay? (laughs) Because God has graciously given you blessings apart from your financial, you know, stability. God's blessings to come to you as a gift in his son Jesus. So you don't have to feel any guilt. But what would it look like for you to get some help and begin taking some, t- some steps towards being able to pursue generosity. Following Jesus will rearrange the plans in your life. It'll change what you do. It'll also change who you know. It'll change who you know. In the world, there's a lot of great things that come from networking. And primarily the goal of networking is to meet people who can help you. Meet people who can help you. As a follower of Jesus, it will cost you your plans of who you know, of who you're going to do life with. Because the story of Jesus is that people 
without power, without money, and without beauty are still valued. And so as a follower of Jesus, we move towards people. We embrace people without power, without money, and without beauty. We don't just help people who can pay us back someday. We help people who can't. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We also invest in people. We spend time with people. We disciple people. Following Jesus changes who you know, and it also changes where you go. Changes what you do, who you know, and where you go. Jesus came to be a savior for all people, all nations. And that means that we've got to be a church and we've got to be people who care about all nations. Where is God sending you? This is a question I'm asking myself. Where is God sending me? Now, God has sent me right now to Maplewood, but where is God sending me? Where is God sending us as a church? What part of the world is God calling us to invest in strategically? And what's keeping you from going? And I'm not talking about on a short-term mission trip. I'm talking about permanently. What's keeping you from becoming a missionary right now? What's stopping you? This is legitimately something that we talk about. Like, can we do more for what God wants to do in the world here or there? If there are something like 2 billion people in the world who do not, have never even heard the name Jesus, then what are we doing here? Now, this is all great. This is important. This is very important. There are people who don't know Jesus here. Absolutely. But as a church, we are going to literally die. Like, we won't exist anymore if we become internally focused where everything we're focused on is where do we put the Christmas cards and what kind of, you know, what's the plan for GCs next year? And if, if all of our attention is we're going to die. We've got to be a church that also looks out and says, God, where do you want to send us? Following Jesus will rearrange your plans. So if you're going to follow Jesus, then you've got to drop your conditions. You've got to drop the, Jesus, I'll follow you as long as. Or Jesus, I'll obey you if you will. Or as long as you promise not to. We have to drop the conditions. Following Jesus will cost you. But do you know why it's worth it? Because Jesus gave up infinitely more for us. Do you know why it's worth following Jesus? Because Jesus gave up infinitely more for us. In order for Jesus to be the God who could save us, he had to give up his reputation. Think about the fact that he was in heaven with his Father, deserving of all glory, honor, power. He comes to earth and is mocked. Mocked. He gave up his reputation to save us. He also 
surrenders his plans to his father. This is why in the garden, before he goes to the cross, he prays and he says, Father, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, then let's do that. But God, not what I will, but what you will be done. So following Jesus is just following the pattern that Jesus has set. Jesus has given up his reputation and his plans so that we might be saved. So would you follow him? Would you come to him? And, and by coming to him, would you recognize that this is God with us? God is near because of Jesus. And God can save because of Jesus. And with that, with those two truths, would you trust them so deeply that it causes you to count the cost and to go through with it? That you would be willing to say, even if it cost me my reputation and even if it cost me my plans, Jesus, I want to be with you. I want to follow you. I want to come your way because you at Christmas came mine. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending your son. God, the fellowship that you have had together, Father, Son, and Spirit, since eternity past, you're inviting us into and at Christmas, you initiated that by coming to be one of us. God, would we believe that? Would we trust that deeply? Would we confess our sins? Would we have the courage to own up to our sin? Come to you and be saved from them. And God, would you... Give us the courage to follow even when it costs us things we do not want to lose. I pray that that would be true of us as individuals and also true of us as a church together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.